Section 16 of The Red Lamp by Murray Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. September 6th. Halliday is still in town. I can do nothing but wait here, eating my heart out with anxiety, and allowing my imagination to run away with me in a thousand ways. My womenfolk support me according to their kind. Jane serves me sweetbreads for luncheon, and Edith sits by, giving me an occasional almost furtive caress as an evidence of her faith in me. But Edith is curiously lifeless. That small but burning flame in her which we call optimism, for want of a better word, seems definitely quenched. She is silent and apathetic, and has been so since yesterday. She seems to resent our having sent in the key to the diary. If only you hadn't done that, she said today. What else could we do? We have to get at the bottom of this thing. I don't see that it has got you anywhere. It has only mussed things up. What she has in her mind I do not know, unless, poor child, she has been building a future on holidays solving the crime, and that now that prospect is gone. She tells me that Star has been on guard at the main house, quietly, for the two nights Halliday has been in town. But if she knows any explanation of his presence, she does not give it. He's afraid to go inside, she said scornfully. He just sits out on the terrace and smokes. If anybody said boo behind him, he'd jump into the bay and drown himself. She has apparently implicit faith in Halliday's ability to keep me from further indignity, but I am not so certain. The sound of a car on the highway sets my pulse to beating like a riveting machine. At the arrival of the Morrison truck a few minutes ago, with some belated buttermilk, I got up and buttoned my coat. My place in my little world behind the drainpipe is neither large nor important, but it is difficult for me to imagine it without me. Suppose the worst to happen, said Matthew Arnold, the portly jeweler from Cheapside. Suppose even yourself to be the victim. Il n'y a pas de homme nécessaire. The great mundane movement would still go on. The gravel walks of your villa would still be rolled. Dividends would still be paid to the bank. Omnibuses would still run. There would be the same old crush at the corner of Fenchurch Street. This is the sixth. It was on the fourth, then, a few hours after Halliday had gone to the city, that a taxi stopped here and Greeno got out. This seemed to me to be a trifle more than his usual ponderousness in his manner, and a distinct concentration in the way he looked at me as I came down the staircase. At the same time, he was civility itself, and he stated his errand matter-of-factly. They had a staff working on the diary, and he knew I would like to be present when it was finished. It's a long job, he said, but we split it into a half-dozen parts and it ought to be ready by eight or half-past. It was six then, and as our early dinner was almost ready, I asked him to stay. We ate cheerfully enough, took the 715 express from Oakville, and were in town and at the county building at something before ten. I was surprised but not startled to find eventually the sheriff there, and three or four other men, including Hemingway, the district attorney. Hemingway held some typed sheets in his hand when we entered, and was reading them carefully. Halliday was standing by a window, staring out into the square, and the first indication I had that anything was wrong was the expression on his face as he turned and saw me. The second was a polite invitation to Halliday to leave the room, and his manner of receiving it. "'I'm staying,' he said flatly. If there's any objection to that, I shall advise Mr. Porter to make no statement and to answer no questions until he can be properly protected. Protected, I asked. Protected from what? From this strong-arm outfit, said Halliday, and surveyed the room with his jaw thrust forward. I am under arrest? Hemingway put down the papers and took off his glasses. Certainly not, he said. Your young friend is being slightly dramatic. I know that you want this mystery solved as much as we do, more since it directly concerns you. This is not a trap, Mr. Porter. We shall ask you some questions, and I hope you will answer them. That is all. I reserve the right to interfere in case of any trick. Halliday put in. We have framed no trick questions, Hemingway said quietly. We want the facts, that's all. He rang a bell, and a secretary came in. My mouth was dry, and someone placed a glass of water before me. From that on, for four hours, I answered questions. 
At the end of that time I walked out, still free, although slightly dizzy. Note. Halliday has recently secured a copy of the stenographic notes of that night. As they would make a small volume in themselves, I give here only such portions as seem to forward the narrative. Q. Your name, please? A. William Allen Porter. Q. Age? A. 46. Q. Your profession is? A. I am a professor of English literature at blank university. Q. You own the property at Oakville, known as Twin Hollows? A. I do. I inherited it something more than a year ago on the death of my uncle, Horace Porter. Q. Had you known that this property was to come to you on your uncle's death? A. It was always understood between us. He had no other heirs. Q. Had you any previous acquaintance with Mr. Bethel? I mean, before he took your house? A. None whatever. I never saw him until he came out to take possession. His secretary inspected the house, and negotiations were carried on through my attorney. Q. In any of your talks with Mr. Bethel, did you gather that he had known Mr. Horace Porter previous to his death? A. Never. Q. When you rented the house, did you retain any keys to it? A. I have a full set in my possession. Q. You had access to the house, then? A. I never used my keys, if that's what you mean. Q. On the night of the 26th of July, Mr. Bethel's secretary was attacked outside the kitchen door of the house and managed to ring the bell there before he fell unconscious. Just where were you, Mr. Porter, when that bell rang? A. The police have my statement as to that. By the sundial. Q. Dr. Hayward was on the road in his car. You were by the sundial, close to the house. Yet when he reached you, you had apparently only found this boy. Is that correct? A. It seems to me that the question there might be, was Hayward on the main road that night, as he says, or nearer to the house than he admits? Q. You own a boat, I believe? A. I inherited one with the property. A sloop. Q. Do you sail the boat yourself? A. I don't know one end of it from the other. Q. In your various conversations with Mr. Bethel, did he ever mention the character of the house? By that I mean any curious quality in the house itself? A. He recognized such a quality, yes. Q. Did he ever mention a letter written to him by a Mr. Cameron here in the city? A member of the Society for Psychical Research, relative to the house? A. Never, but I know of the letter. Cameron sent me word of it a day or so ago. Q. Are you a believer in spiritualism? A. I never have been. Recently, however, I... Note. Here I caught a warning glance from Halliday and changed what I had intended to say. Recently I have been trying to preserve an open mind on the subject. Q. Why recently? A. For one thing, Mr. Bethel had found the house queer, so had the secretary. Q. On the day you asked the secretary to luncheon, the intention was to allow Mr. Bethel to go through his room? A. Bethel? Certainly not. Q. I shall read you this entry from Gordon's diary. Reads. Porter asked me to lunch today, so B could go through my room. They left the knife, but at least they know I have it. A. That's a lie. I asked him to luncheon so Halliday could search his room. It was Halliday who found the knife. You can ask him. Q. We'll let that go just now, and come to the night you were found in the house, Mr. Porter, by Mr. Halliday. A. I wasn't found in the house by Mr. Halliday. We had started for it together. The maid, Annie Cochran, had reported a quarrel between Mr. Bethel and Gordon, and that Gordon had gone away. You must remember that we suspected the boy of being the killer. I was anxious and went for Halliday. Q. What time did the maid tell you this? A. About 7.30, possibly 8 o'clock. Q. And when did you go for Mr. Halliday? A. It was about 11, I imagine. Q. What did you do in the interval? A. She was nervous, and I took her home. After that we had callers. Q. Did you see Mr. Bethel in that interval? A. No. Q. Had it occurred to you that Gordon might be going to see the police? A. I never thought of it. Why should he be going to the police? Q. 
Did Mr. Bethel think of it? A. I've told you, I didn't see him. Q. On the night of the murder in the house at Twin Hollows, what led you to your discovery of the crime? A. My wife heard the telephone ring, and I went to it. All three buildings were on one line, and the receiver at the main house was down. I heard a crash, and heavy breathing near the telephone. Q. That made you suspicious? A. I had been expecting trouble between Mr. Bethel and Gordon. Q. Why did you expect trouble? A. I knew they had quarreled. Mr. Bethel had told me that it was he who had struck Gordon, mistaking him for a burglar, and that Gordon suspected it. Q. When did he tell you that? A. I don't know exactly. About three days before the murder, I think. Q. Can you remember the burden of that conversation? A. Very well. He said that he was suspicious of the boy, that he was weak and vicious, and possibly criminal. He knew he was going out at night. On the night of the 26th of July, Gordon was out, and he dragged himself downstairs. When he heard him at the kitchen door, he struck him, but he maintained that he had not tied him. I believe that, personally. He had one useless hand. Q. Did you ever have any reason to believe that Mr. Bethel exaggerated his infirmity? A. Exaggerated it? What do you mean? Q. You believe he was as helpless as he appeared? A. I can't imagine a man assuming such a thing. Q. Now, Mr. Porter, you have said that the telephone receiver at the main house was down, and you heard enough over it to alarm you. A. Yes. Q. It rang and you went to it? A. Yes. Q. How could it ring if the other receiver was down? A. As a matter of fact, I didn't hear it. My wife said it had rung, and to satisfy her I went to it. Q. Did the secretary, Gordon, ever approach you on a matter of money? A. Money? I don't understand the question. Q. Did he ever ask you for money, or intimate that he needed it? A. Never. He said something once about giving up his position. Q. Where was he, the night you held the conversation with Mr. Bethel relative to him? A. Here in the city, I believe. Q. And Mr. Bethel thought he might have gone to the police? A. That's the second time you've intimated that Gordon had something to tell the police. I can't talk in the dark like this. If anybody wanted to avoid the police, it was this boy. Q. I'm going back to the night Mr. Halliday found you in the house. A. He didn't find me. We had started there together. Q. You say you saw a figure at the foot of the stairs and fired at it? A. I didn't intend to fire. Q. You didn't recognize this figure? A. No. Q. It was not Mr. Bethel? A. Bethel? No. He was locked in his room. Q. You say you are not a spiritualist? A. Certainly not. Q. You have never made any experiments in spiritualism? A. I have been present at one or two seances. Q. When? Recently? A. We have held two sittings in the main house within the last few days. Q. When did you first share the symbol of a triangle inside a circle? A. If you mean in connection with the crimes... Q. Before that, you told Mr. Greeno some time ago that you had heard of it in some other connection. A. I told him I had happened on it in an old book on black magic and told a group of women about it. It was a purely facetious remark. Q. Can you account for its use in connection with these crimes? A. I have no official knowledge that it was used in connection with the crimes, only with the sheep killing. Q. But you know it was so used? A. I know that it was used once when Mr. Greeno did not find it. Q. Where was that? A. On a tree near where the Morrison truck was discovered. I have heard that it was on Carraway's boat, but I don't know that. I know it was deliberately put on my car after Mr. Halliday was hurt. Q. You say, put on the car? Do you mean by that Mr. Bethel did it? A. Bethel? How could he? We have thought lately that Gordon was responsible. We found a piece of his cipher nearby. Q. You have felt all along that Gordon was guilty? A. I won't say that. I would say that the burden of the evidence indicated that he was guilty. Mr. Halliday has had considerable doubt of his guilt. 
Q. Have you ever considered that it might be Bethel who killed Gordon? A. Never. He couldn't have done it. Q. But if he had had assistance? A. Are you telling me that Bethel did kill Gordon? Q. I am telling you that somebody killed Gordon, Mr. Porter. His body was washed ashore at Bass Cove this morning. September 7th. Halliday has saved me from arrest by giving to the police the information she has been gathering on the case all summer. Has made a quiet gesture, which is like him, and given me back to life, liberty, and the pursuit of literature. He came out last night, and I understand is still asleep. He has had very little sleep, poor lad, for a long time. I myself collapsed this morning, and Hayward has put me back to bed. Edith, spreading my coverings neatly before Greeno came up, says I am now so thin that... You really make a hollow, William. If it were not for your feet, nobody would know you were there. It is impossible to record in detail my conversation this afternoon with Greeno, covering as it did more than an hour. He came in, I thought, slightly uncomfortable and perhaps a little crestfallen, and I motioned him to a chair. He sat down and mopped his face with his handkerchief, and after that stooped and rather deliberately wiped his shoes with it. Then he straightened and looked at me. Well, Professor, he said, it's a darned queer world. There's no denying it. The world's all right. It's the people in it who mess things up. Like fleas on a dog, was his rather abstracted comment. He felt in his pocket, with much the same gesture as on that early visit of his, when he had drawn the triangle within the circle on the back of an old envelope. Whether the movement was reminiscent to him as it was to me, I cannot say, but he glanced at me quickly and then smiled. Sort of had me going, you did, there for a while, he said. But I was getting pretty close to the facts before this diary came along. Of course it helped. He had Gordon's diary in his hand. Naturally, he said, fingering the book. Your young friend's information was valuable. I'm not discounting that. The handprint on the window board, for instance. I'd have found it sooner or later, but it saved time. And the young lady, too. She's done her bit all right. I've been handicapped by being too well-known around here, and Star's a fool. He snapped out this last statement, and I gathered that he was still smarting under the knowledge that, without Halliday and Edith, he would still be nowhere. It was, more or less, his defense. Of course, he said. Ever since we got hold of this diary of Gordon's, one thing's been pretty clear. Bethel wasn't working alone. According to what I saw of him, it wasn't possible. He couldn't even have made a getaway without help. The only question was, who'd helped him? So you picked on me? Well, he said wryly, you'll have to admit that you've seemed to go out of your way all summer to get into trouble. As a matter of fact, I didn't pick on you, it was Gordon. He looked at my clock. I've only got an hour, he said. Your niece is sitting on the stairs now holding a stopwatch on me. I can't read you this thing, but I can tell you what's in it, and believe me, that's plenty. Briefly, then, the deciphering of the diary had left me in a very bad position. When they had finished it, it was Benchley's idea to arrest me at once. They had the boy's body, a fact they had kept to themselves, and I was within an ace of a charge of murder. But Halliday had stayed. He seemed to feel there was trouble coming, Greeno said. He hung around and drove us all crazy. He insisted that he'd brought the key on his right to read the stuff as it came through, and as it went on, he didn't know exactly what to do. Finally, seeing what was in the air, he made a trade with us. He was willing to have you brought in and interrogated, but on condition that if you weren't held, he'd come over with something of his own. You get the point, of course. There's a reward involved, and he'd been holding out on us a bit. He waved his hand. That's natural. We don't hold it against him. But the point is, he made his trade. Coming to my examination, my answers had apparently impressed Hemingway satisfactorily. On the other hand, added to the diary's constant suspicion of me, was Reno's own case against me. He passed over that rather airily. I wasn't trying to make out a case against you, he said. As a matter of fact, you couldn't have been the man who attacked Halliday. You weren't here. Naturally, I agreed gravely. I wasn't here. Of course, if I had been here... He glanced at me quickly, but went back to the night of the inquiry. The question was whether to hold you or not. You may remember Hemingway going out when it was over and talking to Halliday outside. Well, it was then he made the trade. 
Apparently, the fact that Gordon had been the victim had not been the surprise to the police that it had been to me. For one thing, the microscope had shown one detail which the detective had not mentioned to me at the time. Cut between the handle of the knife and the blade had been a short piece of hair. The microscope showed this hair not only young, a matter readily determined, and the approximate color of Gordon's. It also showed it liberally coated with pomade. Poor Gordon's glistening, varnished hair. But Greeno had been inclined at first to think that there had been two victims instead of one. Darn and passing on, he says. It's not like taking your thumb out of a bowl of soup. It's bound to leave some sort of a hole. And there had been no hole. If Bethel had died and passed on, no one apparently missed him. As time went on and no queries were received, the thing began to look ominous, as though Bethel himself had been hiding away, under an assumed name. The idea that Bethel had had an enemy from whom he was hiding, and who had found him, began to intrude itself. But, he said with engaging frankness, that eliminated you, and you wouldn't be eliminated. You were like some people you've seen when there's a cameraman about, always getting in front of the machine and into the picture. And the king will not be able to whip a cat, but I shall be at the tail of it, I quoted. He looked rather bewildered. Then came the diary, and Gordon brought me in unmistakably, and in a way they had not thought of. Not an enemy, but an accomplice. Bethel hiding there, with my connivance, and the two of us, he the brains presumably, and I the hands, working out between us some sinister design which even the boy could not understand. Whatever it is, Gordon had written, shortly after the Morrison girl's disappearance, he has got outside help. And he wonders if I am guilty. But he is not sure of that. He even suspects Bethel, in one entry, of being less helpless than he appeared, and possibly of working on his own. He abandoned that idea, however, and there was a time when he suspected Thomas, even a time when he thought of bringing his suspicions to me. But Bethel was beginning to be afraid of him. He thinks Bethel knows he has discovered the boat. He grows alarmed, and buys a knife. He records that he can take care of himself. But there is bravado in it. Later on he finds that he is occasionally stealthily locked in at night, for three or four hours, and he buys a rope and hides it in his room. After that, matters move rapidly. He found the gunroom window unlocked on certain nights, and set a watch on it, and on one such night, Bethel tried to kill him. He tried to kill me last night, he writes on the 27th of July, and goes on to say that Bethel couldn't have tied him, and that maybe it was Porter. From that time on, he suspected me, and Bethel was watching him. Nothing is so dramatic in all the diary as the situation unconsciously revealed between the paralytic and the boy, each watching the other, the guard up between them, while the servant is in the room, and then down again, the boy recklessly mocking, the old man grim and waiting. And nothing said. The boy goes to the city and tries to buy a revolver, but there is a new law in effect, and he fails. He has the knife and has to trust to that. He thinks of going to the police while he is in the city. The reward would be a big thing. He says... I could go around the world on ten thousand. But his case isn't complete. He needs the outside man. He suspects me, but he hasn't the goods on me. And there are times when he admits the possibility that I may not be the outside man. One night he hears the unknown in the house. There is a reddish glare, and he sees a figure steal into the den. But it doesn't look like Porter. And he is more puzzled than ever, for Bethel is in his room, asleep, and although the boy camps on the stairs until daylight, he does not see the figure again. Quote, at daylight examined Dan in the library, all windows closed and locked, it beats me, close quote. It is about this time, too, that he begins to believe that Bethel is not only watching him, but that he is expecting trouble from some other source. He tells Bethel he has seen a figure go into the den at night, and Bethel shows alarm. He and the other one have quarreled, he says, and B is afraid of him. But on the night when he came home to find Star, Halliday, and myself in the house, his suspicions be returned in full force. He decides that Bethel and I have had a quarrel, and that one of us has tried to shoot the other. 
but his knife has been taken. He steals one from the kitchen and carefully sharpens it, but he is not so frightened as he has been. Bethel and I have quarreled, and he can handle the old man. But matters were rapidly approaching a climax. Bethel was going to give up the house and let him go. He seems to have dared Bethel to discharge him, and to have more than hinted at what he suspects. I can talk for ten thousand, he writes, or keep quiet for twenty. He can take his choice. He has the upper hand now. The other man is no longer in evidence. They have apparently quarreled, and Bethel was left to bear the situation alone. The boy lays various traps, but no one enters the house. The murder pact is broken, and the old man sits in his chair and broods. Blackmail is an ugly word, he says once. Not half so ugly as murder, retorts Gordon, and notes it with satisfaction in his diary. Murder was the last word he wrote there. But for all his apparent frankness, Greeno's errand was clearly only to relieve my anxieties concerning myself. He refused all further information. We have a suspect, all right, he said. I don't mind saying that, but we haven't a case yet, and it's touch and go whether we'll get one. Until we do, we're not talking. September 8th. Halliday's attitude is very curious. He is taciturn in the extreme. He avoids any confidential talks with me, and Jane commented on it this morning. He worries me, she said, and he is worrying Edith. If you go out now and look, you'll see him pacing the boathouse veranda, and he has been doing it for the last hour. I admit that he puzzles me. It was Greeno's errand, so far as I can make out, to relieve my mind as to myself, but to treat Halliday's case, as given to the police, as entirely confidential. It's the outside man we're after, he said, and the outside man we are going to get. But on my mentioning my right to know who was under suspicion, he only repeated what the detective had said. You understand, he said, there's no case in law yet. No one who did a thing and proven who did it are different things entirely. But they would prove it, he was confident. So confident, indeed, that before he left he inquired the make and cost of my car. Evidently, he has already mentally banked the reward. On the other hand, certain things seem to me still to be far from clear. Halliday, I understand, passed over to the police the following facts. A. A copy of the unfinished letter from Horace Porter to some unknown. B. A description of the print of a hand left on the window board. C. A small illustration from the book Eugenia Riggs and Her Phenomena, and showing the same handprint. D. A sworn statement of the Livingston's butler, the nature of which I do not know. E. An analysis of his own theory of the experiments referred to in the diary. F. And a letter to Edith from an anonymous correspondent, to be referred to later. G. The possibility that the two attempts to enter the main house are due to the fact that, in the haste of the escape, something was left there which is both identifying and incriminating. But so far as I can discover, he has not told them that, from the time the guards were taken away from the house at night, he was on watch there. In other words, from shortly after the murder, he must have known that something incriminating had been left there when Bethel and his accomplice, Gordon's outside man, made their escape the night the secretary was murdered. He may even know what it is and where, but he has not told Greeno. Again, there is the fact that a statement about the Livingston's butler was a portion of the evidence he submitted. Surely they are not endeavoring to incriminate Livingston. September 9th. It is Halliday's idea to hold another seance, using Cameron's coming as the excuse for it. I gather that he believes that, under cover of the seance, another attempt may be made to secure the incriminating evidence left in the house. Not that he says so, but his questions concerning the sounds I heard in the hall during the second seance point in that direction. This herbal odor you speak of, Skipper, he asked. Was that before you heard the movement outside? Sometime before, yes. But the odor seemed to be in the room. The sounds were beyond the door. You don't connect them, then? I hadn't thought about it, but I don't believe I do. Did you hear any footsteps? 
I had to consider that. Not footsteps, there was a sort of scraping along the floor. And the moment you spoke, this noise ceased. Yes. The whole situation is baffling in the extreme. I cannot ignore the fact that the seances were proposed by Mrs. Livingston, that it was she who left the hall door unbolted at the second sitting, or that Livingston himself was absent that second night, presumably ill. At the same time, it was Livingston who indirectly advised me against the business. Let it alone, he warned me. Let well enough alone. So far as Halliday is concerned, it is clear that he does not like the idea of another seance, but feels that it is necessary. He assures me the police will be on hand, inside and outside the house, but he does not minimize the fact that there will be a certain risk, and that he dreads taking Jane and Edith into it. It's like this, he said today, feeling painfully for words. In a sense, you and I are at the parting of the ways in this thing. We can let it go and turn loose on the world a cruel and deadly idea which may go on claiming victims indefinitely. He made a small gesture, or we put into the other side of the scale all we have in the world, and then... He pulled himself up. There's only possible danger, he said. Unless things slip, there should be very little. The same list of those present as before. There is an unconscious emphasis placed by Halliday on Hayward and Livingston, but perhaps I am overwatchful. I dare say, thus placed between my duty and my fears, I shall do my duty. I perceive that either Hayward or Livingston is once more to be allowed access to the house, and under conditions more or less favorable to what is to be done. But which one? Later, I have done my duty. I have telephoned Cameron, and he will come out tomorrow night. September 10th. Halliday has taken every possible precaution as to tonight. As it has been our custom to go over the house before each seance, and as Cameron may do this with unusual thoroughness, it has been decided not to place Greeno and his officers until after the sitting begins. Halliday has therefore today connected the bell from that room, which rings in the kitchen, to a temporary extension in the garage with a buzzer. When the lights are lowered, he will touch the bell, and Greeno is then to smuggle his men in through the kitchen. While no one can say what changes Cameron may suggest in our previous methods, Halliday imagines he will ask us at first to proceed as usual. In any event, I am to sit as near to the switch as possible, and when Halliday calls for lights, I am to be ready to turn them on. 8.30. Everything is ready, but I am concerned about Halliday. Has he some apprehension about his own safety tonight? He came an hour or so too early to start with the car for Cameron, and borrowing pen and paper wrote a long communication to Hemingway. What is in it I do not know, but he took it with him to mail on his way to the station. End of Mr. Porter's Journal End of section 16